By way of announcement this morning, I'd like to um, show you a brochure that we have for a Pastors and Christian Workers Conference. It'll happen in about two months. It's at the end of October, uh, the 25th through the 27th, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, up at Glorietta Conference Center. So this is, if you have a, know somebody who's a pastor, assistant pastor, or a Christian worker, lay worker, doesn't have to be somebody who's professional or on staff. Um, it is interdenominational. Uh, it will be held up at Glorietta. We have everyone from Chuck Smith coming to David Simpson, who is from Scotland, and uh, many, many others. So you can pick up information in the information area. Let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 18. That's where we will begin and we will end in Psalm 59. Somebody once said that life is about 20% in what happens to us and about 80% in how we respond to what happens to us. Sort of a mix between the sovereignty of God and our responsibility. God acts or allows certain things to happen. Then it is our responsibility to respond to that appropriately. Ted Engstrom, great author, writer, was once the president of World Vision, writes these words, Cripple him and you have a Sir Walter Scott. Lock him in a prison cell and you have a John Bunyan. Bury him in the snows at Valley Forge and you have a George Washington. Raise him in abject poverty and you have an Abraham Lincoln. Strike him down with infantile paralysis and he becomes Franklin Roosevelt. Burn him so severely that doctors say he will never walk again and you have a Glenn Cunningham who set the world's one-mile record in 1934. Deafen him and you have a Ludwig von Beethoven. Have him or her born black in a society filled with racial discrimination. And you have a Booker T. Washington, a Marian Anderson, a George Washington Carver. Call him a slow learner, retarded, write him off as unable to be educated, and you have an Albert Einstein. All of these noteworthy examples responded well to the adversities of life. There was pain there was hurt. They didn't fold, but they kept going. We all know that hurting is a part of life. As Christians, we call these things trials. Paul the Apostle said that these trials are common to all men. Everybody goes through them. Some are small, some are big, some are really, really big. Mega trials. David is going through one of those in these two chapters, 18 and 19 of 1 Samuel. These mega trials are more than just your car battery dying on the way to work, the kids getting the flu. It could be a debilitating or fatal disease. It could be the loss of a career. It could be the death of a loved one. David was a mover and shaker. That is the name of the series we've been going through on Sunday mornings. Movers and shakers, those who influenced the nation of Israel in its inception. David is becoming one of those, but in his moving and shaking, he's shaking a little too much. He shakes Saul, the king, up quite a bit. And he becomes one of the most hunted and hated individuals by the king ever to hit the scene in Israel. 
In fact, David's experience in these chapters is the kind of experience that when they happen to us, it makes us wonder, am I going in the right direction? Is God really in all of this? Is he going to show himself strong? I have often thought that if we had the ability to take away pain and trials by a majority vote, we would all vote hands down, yes, absolutely, get rid of them. I don't want them in my life. But at the same time, we are aware of their purpose, right? We know that they shape us. We know that they mold us. We know that we need some adversity so that we don't get spiritually flabby, you might say. Last year when I was visiting Scotland, we went up to St. Andrews, which for you golf fanatics, that's Mecca for golf. St. Andrews was where they developed it. I found out when they first manufactured golf balls, they were smooth until they found out that to get more distance, you have to rough up the surface. So they started making them with dimples in them. They're not a smooth surface. They will go further because of those surface imperfections. We need some rough spots in our lives so that we can go the distance. We can go the furthest. Let's begin uh, in verse 7 of chapter 18. These are the circumstances that shape a psalm that we are about to read. David comes back from killing Goliath and the Philistines. Verse 7, So the women sang as they danced. You remember this part. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul became very angry. The saying displeased him and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward, and it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand, as at other times. But there was a spear in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David. You think it'd be the other way around, right? But Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. Boy, Saul is is a hard guy to figure out. There was a character in one of H.G. Wells' writings named Mr. Polly. H.G. Wells described him with interesting words. He said, he's not so much a human being as he is a civil war. That describes Saul. He was a walking, talking, breathing paradox, a civil war. One instant he'd be docile like a kitten. The other instant he'd be a raging lion. Maybe you know someone like that. Maybe you live with someone like that. Maybe you are someone like that. Saul was. He was after David. It all started when this little Young boy, good-looking boy, defeats Goliath, and a song is written about him that hits the top 40 charts. And all the women sang it. Drove Saul nuts. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. At this point, Saul eyes David very jealously. Seeks to pin him to the wall, 
David escapes. Saul has another plan, and that is to use, get this, his own daughter. I know what I'll do. I'll marry my daughter to him. She'll become my pawn. Look down at verse 21. I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him. Women, how would you like to be known as a snare? This is Papa speaking. Marrying off his snare to David. For the dowry, we won't read it verse by verse, but the dowry was that David should go out and kill a hundred Philistines and give proof that he had. He goes out with a small band of men and kills 200. He's the hero. No doubt Saul was hoping that in this battle that he would be killed, but he wasn't. He comes back quite the hero. And there's only one course of action left. A contract must be taken out on his life. A premeditated murder. That brings us to chapter 19. We'll take it up at verse 9. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. He sat in his house with a spear in his hand. David was playing music with his hand. Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you don't save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window. He went and fled and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for its head and covered it with clothes. Remember doing that as a kid? She did that to save his life. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, Oh, he's sick. Saul sent the messengers back to David saying, Bring him to me in the bed that I may kill him. When the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with the cover of goat's hair for his head. Now now listen to Saul in his words to his daughter. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this? (laughs) Hello. This is the kettle calling the pot black or vice versa sent my enemy away so that he has escaped. And Michael answered Saul, Well, he said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Nioth. One fell swoop, folks. One night. And David's position is lost. He loses his wife. He almost loses his life. Now for about 10 years, he will become a fugitive being hunted in the caves and the cities of Judah and Israel by Saul. He's at the lowest point of his life, or at least one of them. He lost it all. When I was uh, in India for the very first time, I met a man named Stephen. He liked to be called Brother Stephen. He had the biggest smile of any human being I'd ever met. Happy, joyful, Brother Stephen. Brother Stephen told me his testimony, quite unusual, similar, it seems, to David, except not with his father-in-law, but his own father. He was raised in a Hindu home, his father a Hindu priest. Stephen was so depressed, he wanted to commit suicide. He went into a room, got a rope, put it around his neck, was just cinching it up, about to jump, 
And he said he heard an audible voice. It said, Stephen, you will have peace today. He was so spooked by that experience, he quickly pulled off the rope. Thought at least he had reason to find out what that was all about. Was taking a walk down the street of his village, his own words. He runs into a Christian missionary who leads him to Christ. He starts experiencing that peace that he heard about. Well, he goes home to tell his father, the Hindu priest, about his conversion to Christianity. If you know anything about the religious political structure of India, you can guess what happened next. His father took a knife out and wanted to sacrifice him on the spot to the Hindu gods. Chased him out of the house. Stephen said, that was the last time I saw my father. That's the last memory I had of my parents. And in the field that evening, he read the psalm of David. When my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. How do you process that experience? What goes through somebody's mind during those times? Well, Psalm 59 is David's response to what we just read. Let's turn there. Psalm 59. David processes that. And he processes it in the presence of God. Horrible time in his life. What comes from it? A beautiful psalm. Here's something for you. This wasn't the only psalm written during this 10-year exile. Some of the most beautiful psalms that have ministered to you in your darkest times were written during this time. This goes to show you that some of the worst occasions can prompt some of the most beautiful things. In fact, some of the greatest songs and hymns of the church we have ever sung were written by saints going through desperate situations. Charles Spurgeon writes, The music of the sanctuary is in no small degree indebted to the trials of the saints. The afflictions that we face is the tuner of the harps of sanctified songsters. With that in mind, look at the very beginning of Psalm 59. I mean before verse 1. There's a superscription. It says, it's to the chief musician. In other words, this is going to be sung in the temple. Set to do not destroy. Some tune, some ongoing popular song. Use that melody for this song, he's saying. A michtam of David. When Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. So he's framing up for the musicians in the temple... The tempo, the song, and the circumstances. This is his prayer then. It's called a miktam. We don't know exactly, but we think that means engraving. Hence, a permanent writing. He's saying, uh, engrave this in your heart. Put it in your mind. Sing this in the temple as a memorial. Have you ever heard the old adage, prayer changes things? It's true, isn't it? There's another part to that truth we, we don't like to grab a hold of. Prayer changes you when you pray it. We have seen the circumstances that shaped Psalm 59. We're about to read Psalm 59. This is the prayer that shaped the psalmist. In other words, he begins and ends the psalm very differently. A few things I'd like to draw your attention to in Psalm 59. Five qualities about it. First of all, it was specific. Verse 1, deliver me. Look, at he jumps right in. Deliver me, O my 
from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. That ought to comfort you. Sometimes we feel guilty. We just come right into the presence of God and we, hey, I have a need. We think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I should have at least said, praise the Lord first. This was a very specific, to-the-point prayer. There are two verses, actually in Hebrew, four swift stanzas that have four imperatives. Notice them again. Deliver me. Defend me. Deliver me. Save me. He's getting to the point. He's looking up to heaven going, help! Look at verse 3. He describes the problem he faces in specifics. He says, look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me. Are you in danger? Are you being attacked? Are you feeling the, the brunt of someone's antagonism? Tell God about it. And now, it's not that God needs the info. You're, you're not informing God when you pray to Him. It's not like God goes, Really? Well, I didn't know that. Well, I'll take note of that. I'll do something about it. The point is this. The more specific the prayer, I believe, the more specific the outcome. Too often we have vague prayers. We just fill it in. You know, it's not substance. It's just fill stuff. Oh, Lord, you know every need on earth, spoken and unspoken. Just bless every need in all the world, everywhere. Amen. What is that? That kind of prayer, I think, bounces off the ceiling. What, what if you walked into a restaurant? Restaurant. You, I almost said restroom. You walked into a restaurant. You're hungry. See, I need the right word on that one. Would you walk up to the waiter and say... Well, I have a general food need. Bless me. You wouldn't get very far. They would say, could you be a little more specific? What is it you would like? I remember hearing somebody tell me, I think it was a preaching class I had somewhere, never preach to be understood. Rather preach so that it's impossible to be misunderstood. And I think we could carry that principle into prayer. Don't pray just to be understood. Make it impossible to be misunderstood. Once again, it's not that God needs to understand every word you're articulating, but it's important that you do. You understand what exactly you are praying for. I think too often we stuff our prayers full of religious mumbo-jumbo, quite frankly. Clichés. We have heard overused phrases that have accumulated dust over time. We put them into our prayer. We've heard somebody else say them. Sounds cool. I'll use it. Be careful. You might want to just try praying this week without using the words bless, lead, guide, and direct. So I can't do that. You just described my whole prayer line. None of this and all the unspoken needs, Lord. Uh, speak them. Tell them to God. Instead of, Lord, bless China. How do you want Him to bless China? 
Are there people in Beijing you've heard about? Maybe missionaries who are getting Bibles to the underground church? Pray for their strength this week. You know, I've discovered something as I've looked at prayers in the Bible. That some of the greatest servants of God who give the greatest prayers in the Bible were very direct, very specific, very to the point. It seemed like that they learned to cut the fat out, trim it to its irreducible minimum. And you know what? He worked. Elijah. He was the one guy, James the Apostle said, now there's a guy as an example. And he said, the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. And he uses Elijah as an example. What's interesting is the example he used is out of 1 Kings 18 when Elijah the prophet is having a contest with the false prophets of Baal and they're both having a prayer meeting. And it says in that text, the prophets of Baal called upon Baal, get this, from morning till noon. That's a long prayer. Nothing happened because it was a false god. Elijah gets up and offers a 63-word prayer. At least in English. I didn't count them in Hebrew. 63 words in English. That's it? They pray from morning to noon. You come up in 63 words, but it worked. You know why? It was specific. It was fervent in James' words. That word means red hot. I love that. And it was hot. It was from his heart. Specific. And it was therefore effective. So David's prayer was specific. Second, his prayer was honest. Now, you want to hear an honest prayer? Hold on to your seats. Because David is not going to pray, Lord, bless, lead, guide, and direct in this psalm. Look down at verse, seven, uh, verse 5. You, therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. Then notice the next word. Selah. That means, think about that. Pause and just think about that. Destroy them, Lord. Punish them. Think about it. At evening, look at verse 6. At evening they return. They growl like a dog. And go around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. Swords are in their lips. For they say, who hears? He's saying, Lord, blow them out of the water. They're a bunch of burping dogs. That's honesty, folks. It gets better. Verse 11. Do not slay them lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power. And then bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride. And for the cursing and lying which they speak, consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be. And let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Think about it. Wow. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, Lord, don't kill him too quickly. That's too easy. Let it be slow. Painful. Drag it out. <laughs> now, I know you're kind of feeling uncomfortable right now because you're laughing, and this is Scripture, however. And I think some of us have gotten so accustomed to reading our version, we have lost the impact of the original. Here's a newer translation, same verses. It's in a translation called The Message. 
It says, Don't make a quick work of them, Yahweh, lest my people forget. Bring them down in slow motion. Take them apart piece by piece. Finish them off in fine style. And then finish them off for good. We're shocked. That sounds not like David would pray this, but like the mafia would pray this or something. (laughs) Case them in cement, God. Isn't it amazing what you find in Scripture? And remember, this is a worship song later on. That's what makes it very, very interesting. I guess uh, lesson number one is don't hassle people who walk with God or you might incur this prayer. Now, please understand, just because we might pray this very honestly doesn't mean God's going to do this. This is inspired Scripture. doesn't mean that David's thoughts were inspired, that David's prayer for vengeance were inspired, but this is the accurate record of it. It is infallible, the inspired Word of God, in its recording of the instant. And aren't you glad God doesn't say yes to all of our prayers? Sometimes He says, oh no, that would not be good. I will answer your prayer. Here it is. No! The second and the greater point I want to make here is that David was open with his God and he was honest with his God and you ought to be open and honest about how you feel. Pour out your heart, David said at one point in another psalm to the Lord. You know what? God can handle it. God is unshockable. You think when David prayed this, God went, like some of us did just now? God didn't. God understood who David was. He understood the pain he was going through. God is not shocked by our prayers. But you also ought to know God is not impressed with our prayers either. God doesn't stop when somebody offers a golden-tongued, eloquent prayer in a British accent and go, Now that is a prayer I will answer. That was cool. Did you hear that? It's not impressed with it. In fact, some of the most flowery prayers are simply a smokescreen for disobedience. But it sounds so good. Here's an example. A girl praying on her wedding day. Dear God, I can hardly believe that this is my wedding day. I know I haven't been able to spend much time with you lately. All the rush of getting ready for today and all. And I'm sorry. I guess, too, I feel a little guilty when I try to pray about all this since Larry still isn't a Christian. But, oh, Father, I love him so much. What else can I do? I couldn't give him up. Oh, you must save him some way, somehow. You know how much I prayed for him and the way we've discussed the gospel together. I've tried not to appear too religious. And that's because I don't want to scare him off. Yet he isn't antagonistic. I just can't understand why he hasn't responded. Oh, if only he were a Christian. Dear Father, please bless our marriage. I don't want to disobey you, but I do love him, and I do want to be his wife, so please be with us, and please don't spoil my wedding day. Amen. Someone took that very prayer and stripped it of all of its religious language down to its honest components, and it would sound more like this. God, I don't want to disobey you, but I must have my own way at all costs. For I love what you do not love, and I want what you do not want. So please be a good God and deny yourself and move off your throne and let me take over. If you don't like that, then all I ask you to do is bite your tongue and say or do nothing at all that will spoil my plans so I can enjoy myself. Amen. 
That's honesty. If there's one person you ought to be honest with, it's God. Because he knows the truth anyway, doesn't he? You're not going to pull one over on him. You're not going to do a good con job on him. So be honest. God can filter through all the requests and the feelings. But be honest with him. David was specific. David was honest. Another thing about this prayer, it was, I've used the word appraised. He evaluated his situation. Verse 3. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. He's not claiming sinless perfection. He's saying in this situation, it's not my fault. This is not your punishment. I didn't do anything. Think about it. He was a shepherd kid. And dad said, get in here. Somebody wants to see you. And it was a prophet who poured oil on his head and said, hey, kid, you're the next king of Israel. And he thought, what? He was still his dad's servant. He went to work for King Saul as a musician. He saw a giant one day, had great faith. Nobody else did. He killed the giant. He becomes a hero. He delivers Israel. And yet he's the most hunted man in all of Israel. And there he is with Samuel in Nioth. And he writes this psalm. And he goes, it's not my fault. I'm evaluating, I'm appraising my situation. It's through no fault of my own that this has happened. If you want to pray bravely, it helps to evaluate and appraise your situation and realize that what is happening to me isn't because I've sinned, isn't because I've disobeyed God, isn't because I'm guilty in front of people. David knew he was in the will of God and he prays with great confidence. Listen to how close this situation sounds like 1 John chapter 3. John writes, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and we do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Here's my point. Learn to appraise the attacks you get in life. Ask, who's it from? Is it from a close friend who loves me dearly and would criticize me so that I might become better? Is it from a jealous neighbor? Lord, what is this? What's this all about? Is this true? Then ask a close friend who knows you really well and say, hey, this person has said this and is attacking me on these issues. Do you find that I'm this way? Is this true from your perspective? If it is true, be open. Change. If it's not true, don't worry about it. Move on. woman came up to Dwight Moody, the great evangelist from Chicago the last century. Moody was in a very effective evangelist. He was, he was a great speaker, but his English wasn't perfect. Far from it. After the message, a woman came up to him, listened carefully to any words he might mispronounce or grammatical errors, and she said, Mr. Moody, I'm an English teacher, and it's appalling how you have butchered the grammar of the English language. I would think that if someone was going to speak to this many people, they would at least master the English language. He said, well, ma'am, I'm doing the very best for Jesus with what I have. Then he paused, and he looked intently at her, and he said, tell me, ma'am, are you doing the very best for Jesus with what you have? 
That, of course, ended that critique. He was able to appraise the attack, as was David. Another thing to notice in this prayer, down in verse 8, is it was filled with confidence. But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. I will wait for you, O you his strength, for God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. We're starting to see changes in David's prayer life. His tone is changing. Now, one of the noteworthy aspects about this psalm is the profusion of the names of God. I I want you to notice them. You have to look at them individually. Verse 1, my God, David addresses the Lord as. Verse 3, O Lord. Verse 5, O Lord God of hosts and also God of Israel. Verse 10, God of mercy. Verse 11, O Lord, our shield. Verse 17, look down at that one. O you, my strength. You can almost feel the confidence building in the psalm from the first to the last. Verse 8 is a turning point of confidence. He uses that conjunction, but in contrast to all this truth that I've just spewed out before you, Lord, in contrast to that, but you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You'll have them in derision. You know, if there's one emotion you don't want God having about you, it's this one, laughing at you. David is saying, I I realize suddenly that though mankind has risen up to attack me, I realize that God is still on his throne. He's still in charge. He's still sovereign. And I realize that if I was that kid out in the sheepfold, anointed by God as the next king, I didn't look for it. He just said I would be. And I killed the giant by God's hand. Because they're attacking me, they're really attacking God. And that's where the confidence comes in this verse. He is realizing that the people fighting against him are fighting God. Have you ever watched God fight? Okay, that might make you uncomfortable. But God has been known to defend his people on many occasions. I could give you many biblical examples. Let me give you a modern example. I was in the Philippines a few years ago, and I met with church leaders who were very excited to tell me their story. There was a group in that area at that time called the NPA, the New People's Army, guerrilla group, who were taking over. They were so bold that they walked into this church a few weeks before at gunpoint with all the congregation said, we'll be back in one week next Sunday morning for your worship service. You better be here. We at that time want all of the church assets, all of your present money, If you don't come, we're going to destroy this church and you, this village. How many people do you think showed up the next Sunday morning for church? It would be an interesting test, wouldn't it? They all showed up early and they prayed and they knew those people were coming and two jeeps were on their way to that village filled with NPA. But on the way, some would call it a twist of fate, an unusual circumstance, there was an accident. Both jeeps were overturned, and the guerrillas who were going to kill those believers were all killed. There was a great confidence in that church service that morning. 
Isn't it great to just be able to know that when you're in the will of God and people surround you like dogs, you can say, you better watch it. I'll tell God on you. That's David's confidence. And confidence exudes from this. Verse 9, I will wait for you, O you his strength. Finally, this is a progressive prayer. I've hinted at that so far. Look at verse 16 and 17. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. Stop there for a minute. I really need to take you back to verse 14 to show you that the circumstances haven't changed, but David has changed. It's the same thought as verse 6. And at evening they return, they growl like a dog, they go all around the city, they wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. O you, or to you, O my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense, my God of mercy. The psalm begins more or less in panic. It ends in praise. It has progressed in confidence. It has progressed in trust. And now the guy's singing. Uh, Compare two verses with me in closing, would you? Look at verse 9. I will wait for you, he says. I will wait for you, O you, his strength. He's speaking about himself here in the second person for poetic reasons. Then verse 17. Compare that with verse 9. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises. First he says, I'm going to wait. Then he says, I'm going to sing. Because he's been waiting and watching and looking heavenward, so to speak, his eye has been on God in this trial. He has become changed. Prayer changes people. And now he's singing. You ought to know that in the Hebrew language, the word sing and the word wait are identical. Except for one stroke of the pen, one letter change makes the difference in the meaning. I think the lesson here is that when we are waiting for God and looking to the Lord, we are just one stroke away from a song. Do you have joy? Can you sing in these circumstances you're in? If not, maybe you haven't been waiting for the Lord. Maybe your confidence hasn't been in Him. Have you noticed that when we pray to God about whatever is going on in our lives, we seldom, if ever, pray for a change of personal character? We pray for a change of circumstances, right? Get me out of this! In Jesus' name, amen. But do we pray for a change of character? Where we ourselves become changed? You know, He could have ended this prayer in verse 15. They go all around the city. They burp like a bunch of dogs and they're not satisfied. Amen. But he goes, but I will sing. You know what that reminds me of? Acts 16. Paul and Silas were arrested, beaten, jailed. And at midnight, it says, they sang praises to God. You know, I've looked at that and I go, come on. In the darkest part of the night, you guys are having a concert? You guys aren't complaining to God? No, they were singing at midnight. You know, it's easy to sing when you're prosperous. 
It's easy to sing when everything you've planned is going your way. Anybody can do that. But what about a midnight in jail, being beaten, having your life hunted like an animal? Most of us would fold David Sings. Once again, Spurgeon said it best. Any fool can sing in the day. It's easy to sing and read the notes by daylight. But the skillful singer is the one who can sing when there is not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night, says Spurgeon, come only from God, for they are not within the power of man. Can only come from a person of God looking and waiting on his Lord. So we have the circumstances that shape the psalm, but better yet, the psalm that shaped the psalmist as he processed this in the presence of God. Question I'll leave you with. Have you honestly made a prayer to God to ask Him to be your Savior and your Lord? Please don't misunderstand that question. I'm not saying... Have you decided to become a religious person and go to church faithfully? Quite frankly, that is not the issue. The issue is, have you said to Jesus Christ, I know I'm a sinner, and I know you're a Savior. And I know you love people like me, and I give you my life, and I will live my life for you. That's what the Scripture calls being born again. And that's the most important prayer you could ever pray. Have you done that? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for preserving so perfectly the thoughts and the words of a man in deep distress going through one of the mega trials of life when life just plain hurt all the time. And in his lowest moment, he brings us to such heights of praise as he processed his experience in the presence of you, O Lord. Lord, I thank you that David was both specific and honest. That he appraised his life as we ought to when we bring our stuff before you. That confidence erupted in his heart as he considered you and he ended with a song, though the circumstances hadn't changed. What a lesson that is for us. I pray it would be an abiding one. And I pray, Lord, for those who have come this morning. They've heard about prayer, but they, they have never honestly made that prayer we just described to you as being Lord and Savior and forgiving them of their sins. Else all the other prayers from that point on would be meaningless unless they would make that one initiatory prayer into your presence. And so we pray for anyone who's come this morning, Lord if they don't yet personally know you, that today would be the day of surrender. That's, they'd say yes to you.